feminist economics isn't just about women or a women's economy, it's about trying to give value to things that have been, I think, very deliberately devalued under capitalism. There's something about wanting to interrupt a kind of economic model that doesn't mean we have to return to some kind of milky set of feelings, but means that we rethink what value means. Looking at what is usually presented as, you know, inevitable natural order of things, as something that is actually sometimes designed and many times misinformed. If we want to highlight the impossibility, but also maybe start to imagine what a possibility of a less oppressive gendered labour might look like, the feminist red horizon, it is a place where reproductive labour is shared as much as productive labour. Based on simple principles of not exploiting others, a sense of equality, inclusion, fairness, ethics around caring for people. What do we want the economy to be? What do we want it to look like? What should we value within our economy? How should we measure success? All of those kinds of big questions, which we don't often tend to look at really when you think of the economy because it's often talked about or conceived of as this kind of black box. You know, it's, it's already made and done and you know, we humans have to kind of dance around it and make sure we don't anger the beast too much. This is True Currency, a podcast about feminist economics. Over the next six episodes, we're going to be looking at what an economy is and what propositions feminist economics holds for doing things differently. Exploring relationships between work and care, we're going to hear from women in care roles, from people at the forefront of women's struggles at work, advocating for change, from organisations and individuals supporting low-paid and marginalised women, exposing some of the financial inequalities that exist in the UK today. I'm Amy Fenwick. And I'm Ruth Beale. And we're artists and mothers who collaborate under the name The Alternative School of Economics. The way we work as artists is to learn together with others, to find out about economic ideas that can initially seem opaque. We do this collaboratively, so that we can give space to the personal experiences and expertise of the people we meet as part of the learning process, connecting everyday life to the bigger picture. Sometimes this process produces ways, however small, of challenging institutions, systems and language that can be exclusionary. And this podcast shares some of this process and we're hugely grateful to everyone who's given their knowledge and voice to help us explore these ideas. These moms are really contributing because they raise these children to help prominent people in the society. They look after their husbands to come out and work and, uh, and contribute to the tax paying and for the development of the country. I think they, we shouldn't just be referred to as they're just moms sitting at home. That phrase like we're useless. So we've been exploring economics together for about eight years, but we've never specifically explored feminist economics. And as women artists and mothers, we wanted to find out more about it. Yeah, and we've been artists in residence at Gasworks, an art gallery and organisation based in Lambeth in South London. And as it's a participation residency, they've supported us to start a reading group about feminist economics and to connect with local communities and to reach out to people who could help us understand what feminist economics is. 
Feminist economics is about recognizing those elements of the economy which aren't always recognized you know and there's there's a whole school of kind of environmental economics and there's a big crossover between the two it's about recognizing that social reproduction is as important as production how we as a society continue how we care for bring up educate and so on the next generation how we care for people when they're old is central to um, the economy. It's not something separate over there that can be dealt with separately. That's Mary-Anne Stevenson from the Women's Budget Group. And they're an organisation which scrutinises government policy. They work to provide numbers and data to help people understand the impact of those policies. They also propose alternatives for a more gender equal future. We'll hear from Mary-Anne again in a minute, but first we should tell you a bit more about why we wanted to do this. Yeah, so for me personally, becoming a mother created this big shift in my understanding of how women are viewed in society and where they exist within the economic system. And when I first became a mother, I definitely had this strange feeling of being outside of things, of being outside of capitalism and this idea of what productivity was. But at the same time, I was working really hard, looking after my child and keeping her alive. Yeah, I think I had this idea before I had children that things could be equal, but of course they're not. And it's more complicated than just a division of labour. It's actually about having the baby, breastfeeding the baby, and then this gap that opens up between who's doing the caring and who's earning the money. And it's not like my partner doesn't do anything at home. He totally does. He's more domestic than me. It's just ridiculously hard trying to do everything and be there for your children's needs whilst holding down pretty much anything else. But yeah, it's different for everyone. My experience really isn't universal. It's important to say that, you know, we're both white women. We're non-disabled. We benefit from cisgender privileges. We've been brought up in the global north and have both been to university. Yeah, and all of that gives us power and privilege and capital. So, you know, for us, moving through the world is not a daily challenge. And we're also given opportunities to make art and speak and write and we're aware that others may not be. We really wanted to make sure that we heard from women with all kinds of experiences because we know that the economy affects different women differently. And when we say women, we mean all those who identify as women. Yeah, and also women have different feminisms and even feminism can mean different things to different people. In this episode, If Women Counted, which is a title inspired by the founder of feminist economics, Marilyn Waring. We'll hear how women are both part of and excluded from the economy. We see ourselves very much as a feminist organisation within the women's movement, putting the feminism into economics and the economics into feminism. Here's Marianne from the Women's Budget Group again. I wasn't quite involved from the beginning. The Women's Budget Group was founded in about 1989. It was a group of women who were very concerned that when the budget came out every year, you'd have all these reports in the media saying, you know, this is how it affects a single man. This is how it affects a family. This is how it affects a retired couple. There was very little analysis of how budgets might affect women and men differently. So they got together, um, and it's a mixture of of academics, women from the voluntary sector, I think quite a few from from development organisations, feminist activists, others got together to watch the budget every year and to produce a response saying this is how we think it will affect women. And it seems 
that the way the country's economy is measured is flawed. The problem with GDP is that it, it only measures the public world of the economy. So it only measures that which can be costed and counted where there's a transfer of money from one person to the other or one organisation to another. It doesn't take into account unpaid care. So if somebody pays somebody else to care for their child or for an elderly parent, that is a contribution to GDP. If they do that care work themselves, it isn't. So our whole notion of the economy is based on the idea that only certain things count, only certain things matter, and then when we're thinking about what's good for the economy, we think about what's good for that public bit. The other problem with GDP, I think, was particularly the focus on the need for constant growth of GDP. You know, we're in a situation of climate crisis. We need to take urgent action to deal with that, and having an economic model that is based on the idea that we need to keep growing, we need to keep consuming more and more and more stuff in order to keep the economy growing more and more and more, and that's the measure for success, is very dangerous. We actually need to think about how we can change what we do. We need to think about a greater focus on renewable energy and also on moving away from a kind of a disposable model of consumer goods where what you want to do is buy lots of things relatively cheaply and throw them away when you're finished with them. So we need to start looking at the harm that we're, uh, or the damage that's been done as well by yes. society. You know, when we're thinking about the economy, it's like we only think about one bit of it. So we think about this little bit, which is about the transfer of money and labour from different groups. And there's the two bits that are ignored are the kind of what you might call the domestic economy, you know, what's happening in the private sphere, um, and all what's often seen in classic economic terms as externalities, things that aren't like the environment. And actually, we all depend on all of this. You know, we all need, we need clean air, we need clean water, we need to live in a planet that isn't burning. We all need care. All of us need care at points in our lives. You know, we needed care when we were children and most of us will need care when we're old. And most of us provide care at some point in our lives for children or for elderly relatives or for partners or whatever. So caring and being cared for is a fundamental part of human experience. It's one of the things that makes us human. And one of the problems with classical economics is this idea of the, the sort of economic man as you know perfectly rational and independent and actually we need to be much more aware of the fact that we are interdependent we need other people we need other people to look after us we will end up having other people needing us to look after them and so we need a model that recognizes that interdependence and recognizes that the centrality of care I guess to, to human experience and that's care for individuals, but also care for the planet so that we have somewhere that we can live and that our children and hopefully grandchildren can live in safely. I don't know if you've read the book, Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner? That's that central question, you know, Adam Smith says, you know, the man doesn't get his dinner by the generosity of the butcher or the baker, or all of these things. It's, it's an economic transaction. They're acting in their self-interest to send him the bread and the meat. But that comes to the fundamental question, who actually cooked his dinner. Turns out it was his mother for most of his life. She wasn't paid. She wasn't acting in a self-interested way. I mean, you might argue that maybe she has an interest in supporting her son, but there is something else going on there which isn't about economic self-interest. It's about human relationships.
And so, you know, an economics that doesn't recognise the significance of human relationships is missing half the picture. Whether you're a feminist or not, you can't ignore Adam Smith's influence on how the economy works. He had this idea of free market capitalism, so that the markets would regulate themselves through competition. He also came up with gross domestic product, or GDP, which measures the market value of goods and services in a specific time period. And he was so influential that we've been stuck with this way of measuring economic health for 300 years. Just to kind of talk about this more personally, about often women who are parents feeling like they have to keep the fact that they themselves have children kind of quiet when applying for jobs. You know, we were very kind of clear because we were setting up a feminist economic space that that would not be the case with this. But I, as a freelance artist, quite often, and I'm sure you guys will probably find the same, I quite often don't disclose that I have a child until after I've been offered some work. So the kind of precarious kind of work that I do and the fact that often being an artist requires travelling, it can require going away on residencies, which is not necessarily something that's easy to work if you have a child. I generally won't mention it and I feel like there's something deeply unfeminist about the fact that I keep that undisclosed, but actually that's kind of how I have to do it to get by. That's Ailey Rutherford, who we'll hear more from later in the series. She talked to us about the specific experience of being an artist and a mother, something we can both relate to. And it's an acknowledgement of the biases that exist there, isn't it? So that you know you can do the job and you will do the job and you'll make it work, but in order to prevent somebody discriminating against you, you might not disclose things, which is a kind of privilege because, you know, there's other things that people can't not disclose about themselves. But um, interestingly, I have asked a number of male friends who are artists who have children if they ever feel like that's something that they can't talk about or they they're conscious of having to keep quiet about it and none of them have to do that no it's a sort of badge of honor (laughs) or it's not even it's yeah it's literally not a problem is it so because the assumption is is that it won't affect their working hours yeah that's a better better (laughs) reading We also spoke to Catherine Baum and other artists about her project Company Drinks and how artists can reimagine economies. Here she talks about how artists' sometimes radical approaches sit in relation to capitalism and about meeting Catherine Gibson, whose book Take Back the Economy talks about the idea of the economy as an iceberg. Suddenly we could um, use a language that didn't have to be anti-capitalist and I think for her... The iceberg and the act of recognising yourself in the wider economy and to recognise your active daily contribution to the economy, is a, she describes it as a kind of emancipatory act. And, and once this is done, you, you're part of it. You know, you're not like constantly in opposition. You're, you might be suppressed and you might be really invisible and really poorly paid, but it doesn't mean that you're expelled from from this realm of economy and then now for us with company drinks where we use this iceberg model a lot we're saying okay company drinks is like it's a kind of drinks cabinet as an as an economy so on top you see all the drinks and they look like commodities and they look like drinks in bottles but if you open the cabinet you see all those kind of other economic factors that actually allow us to exist to then make everybody an investor in what's happening is a kind of liberating, emancipating act to some degree. 
So this image of an iceberg is really powerful because it, it makes the economy so much easier to understand. It puts all the, the visible bits of the economy at the top and then all the other stuff that is invisible under the waterline. So we took this idea to a series of creative workshops that we ran at Henry Fawcett Children's Centre, round the corner from Gasworks. About 10 women attended, put their children in a creche, and we had this really nice focused time to talk about motherhood and care and women in the economy, whilst at the same time we were doing drawing and collage and screen printing. That would come out as a stencil, so I think also think about being simple. Um, it's quite amazing how they, you can print from, from paper, actually, and it comes out really well. Um, and we'll probably get a few screen prints from it. Um, but it's, I think it's kind of planning a bit in, in the head. So let's say like Here's one of the attendees of the workshop, Kay Rose, talking about her design. I got this tree that's I feel I'm representing myself here. That's me. That's well. That's me. The roots. I'm the root. That is under the soil that people don't see. But this root is actually the source for this tree to survive. That's where the tree gets its food, water, mineral, everything that it needs to grow. But I'm under the soil. People don't really see I'm contributing to this. These leaves and branches are people in my family, my friends, the community, the society where I live, and my children. These are all the branches, the leaves. This is what it's representing. And I'm here alone, the roots giving all the support to this. So you're the support system for this whole tree? Tree, yeah. yeah. So under here, one minute I'm doing the cooking, the other roots are representing me doing the cleaning, the other roots is representing me being the safety officer around with the children, keeping them safe. Other roots is representing me doing the washing up. Other roots is representing me helping my elderly relatives. And other one is the love giver. And another one is, is listening to my friends. These are all the roots representing different things. I'm supporting my family. I'm the educator, the early educator in the home. All these roots represent different things to this plant. Sometimes I find when we talk about a caring economy in the context of feminist economics, there's a kind of often an assumption that that means that women are inherently more caring, which I think is not true. <laughs> you know, we have to work at caring. Caring is, is work. It's not something that comes naturally to us just because we were born as women. We weren't born as brilliant mothers, any of us. We weren't born as fantastic carers for the elderly in the same way that we weren't born brilliant at cleaning toilets. You know, it's not, it's the fact that that does not necessarily come naturally to women is overlooked. This is so true. And I think those gender stereotypes start at such a young age. You know, we expect girls to be more caring and more sensitive. And then that carries on into adulthood. We ask Mary-Anne what being at the bottom of the iceberg, where all that invisible labour, that unaccounted for labour happens, what that means for women. 
I mean, what's really interesting, I think, is, you know, many of the issues that we were looking at 30 years ago are issues that we're still looking at today. So looking at how spending on public services is particularly important for women. You know, women are more likely to be poor than men. They're more likely to need public services for themselves and the people that they look after. And they're more likely to work in the public sector. So one of the things the Women's Budget Group was saying then and now is that investing in things like health and education, social care, childcare and so on, particularly important to women. And that this investment in, in what we call social infrastructure is as important to the economy as investment in the physical infrastructure of roads and rail and telecom systems. We need childcare to enable us to work just as much as we need trains or buses to enable us to get to work. What are the biggest issues that cause poverty for women? The single biggest issue, I think the the underlying cause of women's poverty and women's economic inequality is unpaid care and the fact that unpaid care work is unfairly distributed between women and men. So women do about 60% more unpaid care than men and over the course of a year they earn over 40% less. Um, Some of that's to do with the pay gap. A lot of it is to do with the earnings gap, which is to do with the fact that women tend to work shorter hours than men because they're doing unpaid care. And so this in turn means that, you know, women are earning less overall, they're less able to save, they're less able to contribute to a pension, they're more likely to be dependent on social security. And that in turn leads to child poverty. You know, children aren't poor by themselves. Children are poor because their mothers are poor. So if you want to tackle child poverty, you have to tackle the poverty of women, but it all comes back to unpaid care. So we need to take into account that women are doing it and that'll have an impact on their earning ability, their ability to take part in public life. You need to reduce it by providing um, publicly funded care, child care, adult social care, and you need to redistribute it between women and men. So in order for women to do less, men have to do more. And that is possibly the most intractable bit. But that is at the heart of why women are unequally represented in the labour market, less likely to be in senior positions, more likely to be on low pay, more likely to be in part-time work, more likely to be poor. So unless we crack that issue of unpaid care, it's going to be very difficult to resolve any of the other issues. People often say, oh, but you've, you've got equality. You know, what, what more do women want? That's, that's really interesting because what we often see is that a kind of interpretation of equality is about formal equality, legal equality and that kind of thing. That's Marion Sharples, also from the Women's Budget Group, and she's working on a commission for a gender-equal economy. But what we want to focus on in the commission is, is around substantive equality, and this is a kind of concept that Sandra Fredman and um, Beth Goldblatt have developed. So it should be asymmetric, so that it can allow for positive action to kind of redress historical discrimination or structural disadvantage, and it shouldn't be about conforming to like a male norm. We don't want everybody to act like men or how men are supposed to act. It should be focusing on levelling up as opposed to levelling down. You know, a really easy way to close the gender pay gap is to pay men less for lots of different work, but that's not what we want. And then the, the final element is about having a proactive approach and always looking out for those opportunities for improving equality and not kind of resting on our laurels, I guess, when boxes have been ticked, making sure that we're always looking more deeply for what's really going on generally whilst we've been doing this whole project and doing the reading and thinking about this stuff 
we're still, <laughs> we sort of still kind of can't believe that we're still talking about this stuff. We wondered whether you'd be able to talk about, you know, the fact that in terms of like roles in the home, for example, mm. that women are much more likely to do all the domestic or the majority of the domestic stuff and the majority of the care work for the children if, if the couple have children. Those roles are still there and why are we sort of still talking about this kind of even though you know we've been struggling for equality for such a long time. But also why we're still in this idea of the like heteronormative family yes. unit that supports capitalism um, <laughs> despite its being. How are we still operating in that model? Um, I guess because these these structures are based on power and but these are structures which are have been embedded and are really deeply rooted in the way that we live and interact with others the way that we work the way you know the way we build our aspirations all of those kinds of things it's hard to chip away at the structures when they're all encompassing and all surrounding and also when the sort of people in power are kind of benefiting from those structures I suppose is another reason. Completely. I mean, if you, yeah, exactly. If you look at representation of women, of people of colour, people with disabilities, of people with caring responsibilities, all of these things, there's 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 a huge kind of failure, I guess, in terms of representation. And then, you know, certain policies are, are prioritised, and, and and certain you know others continue to be neglected. And if you are kind of redesigning how we measure activity, I just don't think it would be possible for unpaid care to be kept within this category of economically inactive or economic inactivity. Ask any mother how exhausting it is to try mm. and deal with a three-month-old baby and, and, and mm. you know, how that's not counted, how that's not valued, how that's not taken into account when we're looking at the things that people do with their days. What Marion was saying there reminded me of two artists, Conway and Young, who calculated the time one of them spent breastfeeding during the first six months after giving birth. The project's called Milk Report, and they worked out that they'd spent 720 hours and seven minutes. And then based on the living wage, they worked out this equates to £5,916.15. And, and that was just the first six months. It's kind of funny, but once you see it in monetary terms, you can see in a really direct way how this labour contributes to the economy. So one of the things that I think it's important to look at when you're thinking about the economy is how you know, a set of, of structures in, of inequality, which is, is what gender is, you know, a, a structure of inequality, can intersect with other structures of inequality, like race or class, in such a way that it's not just additive, it's not just you've got this little bit because you're a woman and this little bit because you're black and this little bit because you're working class, it combines. So the experience of different groups of black and minority ethnic women in the labour market will be different because there's different sets of racial stereotypes around different groups of women. And all of that plays out in the economy, in people's economic well-being and their chances in, in life. And so I think it's it's really important to to recognise that when you're thinking about the economy as a gendered construct, that gender is not the only thing going on. Um, it's one of the things that's going on, but there are other things going on at the same time and all of these different things interrelate. What Marianne is talking about here is intersectionality. 
And that was a term coined by an American professor called Kimberly Crenshaw to describe how race and class and gender and disability and other sort of characteristics all intersect and overlap with one another. And it's very difficult to get data that gives you that evidence of what's happening at the intersections of those. You have to kind of read across. So you can say, OK, well, if women are going to be hit worse than men and black people are going to be hit worse than white people, then you can probably fairly assume that black women are going to have it particularly badly. But there isn't a number there. And one of the things when you're making arguments, um, particularly with policymakers, is it's the numbers that actually provide the evidence that people will listen to, which is why we also did qualitative work, interviews and focus groups with women in Manchester and Coventry. We had young women trained as peer interviewers who went out and interviewed their peers. And what that showed was how a cut in one area can have a massively significant impact in another that you might not realise. And the story that, that always stays with me was of a woman who was being counselled. She was a, um, an adult survivor of child sexual abuse. Her abuser was still at large and alive, and she was kind of getting to the point where she was ready to report him to the police. But she was also the carer for a disabled child, and her child's care package was cut. You know, she said, I've got, I've got it in me for one fight. So my fight is for my child's care package. I can't go through the reporting process. Now, when you're thinking about barriers to women reporting abuse, you think about cuts to services, you think about cuts to the police. You don't necessarily think about cuts to social care. But all of us are constantly making quite complicated decisions about what do we do here and what should we do there. And, and again, those decisions play out differently for different groups of women, because different groups of women have got other resources, different levels of education, different levels of social connections, different levels of confidence, different levels of ability to deal with, you know, bureaucracy and public officialdom. And so the impact of a cut can be different. We'll start with um, the first one. Come in. We made another connection locally with an Indo-American refugee and migrant organisation, or IRMO, and we met a really great group of parents there who self-organised as AMPLA, which translates as Latin American Parents Association, and they help each other out with issues like housing, and access to healthcare and education. Together, we worked out what would be a useful way to collaborate, and we decided on audio podcast workshops, and they recorded testimonials and advice to share with other families who are newly arriving in the UK. Here's Janine Morris-Nujame, a project manager at IRMO, who was part of our workshops. She also translates for us here. So IRMO is a charity that's been going for over 35 years and it's kind of evolved in, in that time. It supports Latin American migrants living in London. Around 2008, the financial crisis meant that a kind of third wave 
of Latin Americans were coming to the UK and these were people who had migrated already from Latin America to Spain, Portugal, Italy, other European countries and because of the financial crisis found themselves without jobs, losing homes and really, really struggling so, you know, they came to the UK. So I'd say that the majority of the people we see are still people who are dual nationals, so also EU citizens and are likely to be kind of affected by kind of Brexit. We offer immigration advice, welfare and housing advice. We have an employment mentoring service and this is mainly for people who've been here for over a year, have got a bit of basic English and it's about kind of stepping up in the workplace in terms of, you know, maybe accessing London living wage or if they're people who want to kind of move out of cleaning and, and those sort of sectors. We also offer English classes for children, young people and adults. We have a school admission service helping families get their children into school. Not just the hostile environment, but I think cuts to public funding have meant that you know, services are really... Pre you know, there's so much pressure on services, so trying to push people away from those services, making it harder, um, questioning their right to accessing services. So with school admissions, for example, applications have got more complicated. Now the proofs of address that are accepted are more complicated. Before it could have been just a bank statement, now it has to be something like a council tax bill, which is really hard for our, most of our families to get because they're subletting and not paying council tax. And then also questions around visas, where they've come from, those are sort of things that are coming up more in school applications. We kind of realised that actually whilst we often explained the school admissions process, like how it should work, we found that a lot of the time the way parents got their children to school was not through following that necessarily, but actually going directly to schools or because they knew someone who worked at a school or someone at the school spoke Spanish and so we realised that actually they had a lot of experience, knowledge and skills that they could share. Esa dirección no puedes poner en el banco ni en JP ni nada, pero cuando te alquilan la habitación te lo dicen. Pero, o sea, pero, o sea, que te yo igualmente, yo salí de la casa directo. ¿A una habitación? No era una habitación, era como... Eh, mi nombre es Ada Baby. Eh, estoy aquí en Londres hace tres años y vengo de España y viví en España 19 años. My name is Ada Baby. I've been here for three years and I came from Spain. I was living in Spain for 19 years. Bueno, eh, la asociación... Empezó porque veníamos a traer a los niños a los deberes los viernes y nos reuníamos todas las madres y una vez conversábamos un poco, íbamos contándonos experiencias de, de cómo vivíamos, cómo estábamos aquí, por el idioma, cómo lo pasaban los niños y, y ya luego con Sara, con Janine, Empezamos a hablar, a hablar, de hacer la asociación, de reunirnos y dijimos que sí, que por qué no podíamos hacerla para contar nuestras experiencias e invitar a más madres para que vinieran y contaran sus experiencias. The association started because we used to come here on Fridays to drop our kids off at the homework club. The mothers would sit together, we talk, talk about how we lived, 
problems with language barriers, housing, how our kids lived, the inconveniences of our work. Mm -hmm. And then through talking with Sara and Janine, we started to think about organising ourselves. And we thought it was a good idea to organise so that we could bring more mothers mm -hmm. who could share their experiences. I, I have a question about whether there's a sort of feminist element to that to why you decide to organise together because of the issues that as, that as mothers you face? Que si somos feministas? Sí. Yo creo que sí, el 100%. Todas somos feministas, sí. I think we are 100% feministas. Ok, sí. It was so inspiring meeting this group of women who are finding ways to support each other, literally using something as simple as a WhatsApp group to share resources and build solidarity. It's been really interesting to hear these different perspectives describing the challenges that women face, from the stark financial inequality that Marion and Marianne described, to expectation and societal norms, to really complicated and intersectional experiences but also how feminism can mean working together and just making women count. We're going to come back to Captain and Alien Marion later in the series to hear about their ideas for doing things differently. In the next two episodes, we'll be taking a look at the different forms of waged work women do and the multiple layers of discrimination and exploitation affecting women in feminised industries. Until then, take a look at our extra resources, a reading list of texts and links which expand upon some of the topics talked about in this episode. You can find this at www.gasworks.org.uk True Currency About Feminist Economics Produced by Amy Fennick and Ruth Beale from the Alternative School of Economics With sound production by Lucia Scatsocchio from Social Broadcasts it was commissioned by Gasworks and supported by the Paul Hamlin Foundation and Arts Council England. <laughs>